Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America. Welcome to Just the News and a new edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast, where we give you facts and truth and we avoid spin and opinion. Uh, we're all about giving you information without the indoctrination. And uh, we're so grateful you're joining us again. We've got an incredible show today. Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, a major player in the House, uh, is here to talk about his new legislation that would ban any tax dollars that are going to go to coronavirus relief from going to Chinese state-owned companies, those owned by the Chinese Communist government. He wants to make sure that after all that China has done, first in failing to give us visibility to the early outbreak, and then in falsely accusing our military of starting the COVID-19 pandemic, that they don't get any money, any reward from the hard-earned tax dollars that Americans give to our government each uh, week. So we're here to talk to uh, Congressman Gates in a little bit. But we also have an incredible exclusive story, one that you're going to want to listen to. It's important. It has a lot of deep research. It's by my colleague, Christine Dolan. Right after the commercial break, we're going to come back and talk about the incredible road not taken, how the government's National Institutes for Health and many of the private researchers and pharmaceutical companies turned a blind eye to drugs that were shown to work on coronavirus back in 02, 03, 05, 06, 09, when there were earlier coronavirus outbreaks. They didn't follow up and do clinical trials on these drugs, drugs like Remsdivar, HIV cocktails, and the one that everyone's talking about now, chloroquine, the anti-malarial, anti-arthritis drug. Uh, there were numerous signs that these drugs would work on a coronavirus pandemic, but nobody took the time. We have some amazing quotes from frontline researchers saying, we bet on the wrong pandemic. We let a lot of people down. Uh, this was a big blunder. You're going to want to hear about that. And also, we'll talk a little bit about the NIH's record of uh, spending money on studies that don't bring much value, things that might make your eyes roll to the back of your head. We're going to get to all that, plus our exclusive interview with Congressman Matt Gates of Florida right after this commercial break. Don't move. We'll be right back to you. All right. Welcome back from the commercial break. We're so glad you're joining us at John Solomon Reports. And remember, support our advertisers and sponsors, especially during this difficult time. Uh, they're making this show possible. Please support their products and their services. They are special to the entire John Solomon Reports family. 
All right. Last night we had some new news out of Belgium uh, and out of uh, Bahrain, two countries, two allies of the United States, both reporting that the anti-malarial drug chloroquine uh, was working on COVID-19 patients, patients with the coronavirus, uh, and that, in fact, Belgium is now ordered, its health agency has now ordered that people not take the drug for everyday uses or for um, mild situations that, so that it can preserve as many pills as possible for those who have a more serious case of coronavirus. Why is this important? President Trump, more than a week ago, uh, first said that he thought this drug, uh, chloroquine, would be uh, an important tool in the fight on uh, drugs. Now, researchers like Dr. Fauci are saying, wait, 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 hang on, we really haven't tested this. Well, that's a good question. If there's been 10 or 15 years of evidence that uh, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine uh, were working on coronavirus patients after the 2002, 2003, 2005, 2006, 2009 coronavirus outbreaks. Why now in 2020 do we still not have the answer? And I asked our colleague, Christine Dolan at Just the News, who's done some great work. She was the first one, first reporter to, to report to you all about chloroquine. She was on this show a couple of weeks ago. We were way ahead of the curve on this. I asked her to dig in. How could it be that we're in 2020? And we don't have any clinical trials that found out which drugs best treat uh, coronavirus, even though we had big outbreaks in 02 and 03, smaller ones in 05 and 06, and another one in 09. And there were lots of studies saying, hey, chloroquine should be tested on humans and clinical data be gotten so we know whether it works the next time we get a pandemic. So she dug into this. And she has an extraordinary story on the front page of Just the News right now. It's called The Road Not Traveled, How Big Science Skipped Clinical Trials After Past Coronavirus Outbreaks. And it's a really in-depth story, 2,000 words of really great reporting with all the documents for you to click on. And here's what we found out in 05, uh, 04, and 09. There were three studies saying it looks like chloroquine worked during the earlier coronavirus outbreaks, and we should be doing clinical trials. And then nobody did them. So we went to the researchers on the front line, the infectious disease specialists on the front lines, and we asked them and we said, what happened? And they said, you know what? We blew it. We made a bad bet. Even though coronavirus was deadly and scary with SARS and MERS, we didn't follow up and do the clinical trials on these drugs that look like they have promise, and now we got to do it in the middle of a pandemic. Not the ideal situation. Some very strong comments. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who's at the uh, one of the big infectious disease specialists at Emory University, listen to his quotes. A lot of opportunities were missed, he said. Uh, a lot of opportunities were squandered. Global pressure was not where it should be. What does he mean? He means that the leaders in the infectious disease world, people like the NIH um, and the World Health Organization, didn't put a focus on following up after the coronavirus uh, uh, outbreaks in the early 2000s to find out which drugs that had shown promise actually really worked, They were, were which ones had actual what they call efficacy, meaning they will really uh, treat a patient. Now, Bahrain, France... Um, the United States, Belgium, lots of people are doing clinical trials now and racing to find out whether drugs like remdesivir or uh, chloroquine or hydro hydroxychloroquine will work. But this could have been done for more than 10 years. So we had the research in our back pocket, the pill stockpiled, and we did not. And there's a really remarkable set of interviews in this article. One of them is 
um, from uh, one of the great Harvard infectious disease specialists, uh, Dr. Sarah Fortune. And she said, listen, we made a bet that the flu, the traditional flu, would more likely create a deadly pandemic before coronavirus did. And we made, as she said, a bad bet. It was a reasonable assumption to make, but we were wrong. So the NIH had an opportunity to prepare for both the pandemic flu and the pandemic uh, potential of coronavirus. They chose only one, and they say they don't have a lot of money, so that's why they only choose one. And they, they say that they uh, do this because they do modeling and they make guesses. Well, guess what was wrong with the modeling that prioritized the pandemic flu uh, or uh, over the pandemic coronavirus outbreak? They forgot to calculate the massive growth in airline travel that occurred after the economy got roaring again after the 2008 uh, recession. Our economy got going. Air travel became so much more extensive and widespread. The airlines were booming. Americans were traveling. Everybody in the globe was traveling. And guess what? All that modeling went out the window, but nobody followed up because uh, more and more people were jumping on planes. And if you got uh, the coronavirus in China, you could bring it to the United States or to France or to Italy in, or to Great Britain in five minutes. Uh, it was a major mistake in the modeling, a major failure to adapt. Everybody got comfortable, moved on to the next great cause. And we didn't do the sort of research that uh, needed to be done. And Hal King, who works for the nonprofit Public Health Innovations, he told uh, Christine Dolan, my colleague, um, the reason we're in this problem today uh, is that um, we focus too much on a pandemic flu and not enough on coronavirus. Um, we made a mistake. Uh, the air travel was a big oversight. We didn't factor that into our models. And in a, in a sense, big science let uh, the world down on this uh, coronavirus. Now, that's uh, great now. There's going to be a lot of armchair quarterbacking. But one of the defenses that scientists at both the NIH and in the government and the private sector say is there is a limited amount of funds. And sometimes we have to do risk analysis and pick the thing we think is most risk oriented and focus on that. And uh, we just don't have enough money. And it's really a function of money. Well, here are the facts. For the last decade, consistently, the National Institutes of Health, the lead infectious disease and disease research, health research organization in America, has had between $30 billion and $40 billion a year to do research. $30 billion to $40 billion a year. That's a lot of money. You can do a lot of research. Certainly these clinical trials on chloroquine or remdesivir or HIV cocktails could have fit into that budget pretty easily. Uh, and when you ask what sort of things are... Uh, we spending our money on, and are are the American taxpayers and is the world getting their big bang uh, uh, for their buck? Are they getting their money's worth? I want to take you back to 2016 because there was a bellwether warning, warning I believe, from an NIH recipient, someone who gets money, one of the main researchers. I, I believe it was at uh, Yale University, um, and he, his name was Dr. Michael Bracken. And he stood up in front of all of his colleagues at one of these classic biomedical research conferences, and he shocked them all. He stood up and he said, waste is more than just a waste of money and resources. It can actually be harmful to people's health. And he excoriated the entire infectious disease community, the entire science community, saying, I think as much as 86, 87 percent of all 
uh, medical research that we're doing now is gone to waste. It's useless. It's vanity-oriented. It's not going to the most serious needs, the most serious causes, the most serious threats. He set a bellwether warning in 2016. And four years later, in 2020, what do we have to show for it? Not very much adjustment. We still have these incredible uh, examples of waste, fraud, and abuse that keep coming out in uh, in newspapers and in Inspector General's report. Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, during the Benghazi investigation, uh, Democrats put a list out of wasteful spending. A lot of it had it was about seven million dollars of just jaw droppers, and um, uh, they highlighted this, saying, "You know, we should be doing a better job in the sciencing." And well, here's one they gave up. This is a Democratic example it, during the end of the Obama administration. So Democrats in Congress uh, excoriating the Obama administration's spending in the NIH. They cited a $3.1 million grant at the National Institutes for Health. Yes, the guy that Dr. Fauci works for, the agency that they work for. Well, what did we do? We spent $3.1 million to give money to a soap opera series called Love, Sex, and Choices that would create 12 episodes to talk about how people deal with HIV in their love life. $3.1 million for a television series, a soap opera. Imagine what that $3.1 million could have done to buy masks or research or clinical trials or vaccine trials. Uh, the, these keep rolling up uh, on a regular basis. The National Science Foundation, which is the sister organization, it doesn't do medical research. It does the other side of science, uh, the non-medical side of science. Uh, things that they got, uh, uh, $412,930. Put that down, $412,930 for a study on the relationship between gender and glaciers. What does an iceberg have to do with the fact that I'm a man or a woman? I, I, I don't know. But these are the sort of things that chronically are being spent in our science and medical community and our research community. And the next time you hear somebody say, oh, my God, we had to make a choice, and that's why it was so hard to prepare for the coronavirus epidemic, the pandemic, just keep in mind the things that I just told you, the warning uh, that uh, a very prescient uh, Dr. Michael Bracken, the Harvard scientist, gave us. The examples I just mentioned, there are many, many more. We're going to do a story on Just the News in the next 24 hours, laying out some of the most egregious examples of wasteful spending at NIH. But this is important if we want to prepare the world for being smaller and the possibility that flus and viruses and bugs and diseases are going to jump from continents and cities and countries much quicker. We need a more fleet of foot, a more accountable uh, research uh, body in America that doesn't spend money on glaciers, doesn't spend money on soap operas, doesn't turn a blind eye to the potential of a coronavirus pandemic because they want to study a different flu pandemic that has all of our bases and all of our backs covered. I think you're going to see a lot more when we get done with this pandemic and life returns to normal, and it will. The big question will be, will Congress, will President Trump, will the government bodies that administer this money go back and look at what they did wrong, where they could have spent money better, and will they start cutting back on wasting your dollars and putting them towards things like a vaccine, uh, a chloroquine a trial, a Remsadar trial, uh, those are the sort of things that Americans expect when they give $30, $40 billion to an agency to get the job done, not these other vanity projects that often have nothing to do except make university scientists uh, get excited in the middle of the night. 
All right. We're going to come back in a few seconds. We're going to ask Congressman Matt Gates about this question with NIH and many, many more, including his very important legislation banning tax dollars from going to Chinese-owned uh, or Chinese government-owned companies during this uh, pandemic. We'll be right back after the commercial break with Matt Gates, Republican of Florida. Stay tuned. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as I promised, a very special guest today, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida joins us. Congressman, welcome to John Solomon Reports. Uh, it's so great to be with you, John. Usually we spend our time together in the Fox News green room uh, getting makeup done, but with appropriate social distancing, I guess the podcast platform is perfect for our discussion. It's all we got left. And uh, let me just say, I, I have to say this because I am an admirer. There are many people I meet in the Fox green room, but none have better suede shoes than you. Oh, well, you know, I try to bring a little flair in the footwear and a little flair in my commentary as well. <laughs> my wife keeps asking, why can't you dress like Matt Gates? I said, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So, well, hey, great. you know, I, I think I think that uh, when we go back and really evaluate this crazy impeachment and all the twists and turns it took, uh, you could write an entire book just out of the information that we were able to synergize in those uh, side conversations in the Fox News green room, whether it was yeah, so uh, true. You, know, report, you know reporting you had done about uh, text messages or communications, whether it was where we had identified a soft spot where we weren't getting uh, information that aligned in our congressional inquiries, where you could then go and do follow-up reporting. I mean, I, I really think there was an entire ecosystem of information built out of that <laughs> green room because because we had we we really were facing establishment forces in the media, establishment forces yeah. in the Congress, in both the Republican and Democrat parties, establishment forces in these institutions. And we sort of built that as a de facto war room and ultimately were successful in that endeavor. It really was an amazing time. I look back and, you know, my, the very first member of Congress I ever met when I came to Washington in 1990 was a, a guy named Bill Proxmire. He was a Democrat from Wisconsin. And he said this to me. I remember the first time I sat down to interview him, he said, and I, he was an, oh, quite old at that time. He looked at me and said, son, and I was quite young. I was in my 20s. He said, son, remember one thing in Washington. Facts are a stubborn thing. If you stick to them, you'll survive in this town. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what we did. We stuck to the facts and not the speculation. And, and, and guys like you and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and Lindsey Graham really helped us in the media. Those who were interested in the truth get that. And we're, we're really grateful for that. Yeah, and, and it, it was we were fighting different wars, but sort of on the same terms. You know, uh, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and I were fighting against a, you know, a Paul Ryan led house that refused to issue subpoenas. And so that was inhibiting our ability through that That's avenue right. to get the truth. Internal out. resistance. You, 
you know, you were fighting the same type of resistance in, in the media where you were doing reporting, you were asking questions, you were posing those questions uh, in, uh, in, in your reporting. And, and then there was this just avalanche uh, from the mainstream media to try to keep that information contained. And so, what, you know, again, it was there, there were different tactical moves we each had to make to try to get the truth out. But in a way, it was it was the same terms upon which we were having to face that resistance distance internally. Yeah, it's a really great. You, you look back with really wise eyes. That's really a good way of looking at what, what happened during that amazing time. And now we're in another war, right? We're in the war against coronavirus. And uh, it's just extraordinary. First off, because a lot of our listeners know this, uh, you were quarantined for a while because you had exposure to someone how are you feeling? How are you doing? Or have you escaped your quarantine location? Yes, yes. No, I, I got out. Uh, all's fine with me. You know, I had held someone's phone who tested positive, And of course, our phones are a place where we shed virus. But, right. you know, I've been I've been like uh, called the Charlie Sheen of Congress before. But now I guess I know I've got the tiger blood because I was able to uh, have mul whether it was, I, you know, I spent time with Bolsonaro. I spent time with uh, his delegation where there was coronavirus. I spent time with this guy at CPAC. But uh, so far, thanks to the good Lord and maybe a little tiger blood, I've been able to, to fend off the virus. Well, that is good news. I know uh, there's a lot of members. I know Rand Paul and others are, are down with it and uh, we're wishing everybody well, but it's good news to hear that you're, you're up and around. So a lot of people on our website, justthenews.com, are, are talking about the legislation that you introduced earlier this week, which would uh, prohibit any of the aid that comes uh, out of this coronavirus package from going to Chinese uh, national companies, so companies owned by the communist government of China. Describe a little bit about what motivated that and what concerns you have about the things we've learned about China in the pandemic. Uh, I serve on the Armed Services Committee where we get regular briefings about China's strategy to try to uh, exert influence with the fusion of their government and autocratic corporate assets. And one of the ways that they do that is to acquire US-based assets uh, as part of that overall strategy. So for example, right. I'm sure a lot of people don't know that like the Radisson Hotel Group is actually owned by communist China. Uh, the Waldorf Astoria in New York City is owned by communist China. AMC Theaters is actually controlled by a Chinese uh, entity. and. So uh, I don't believe that it is the work of a great nation to go and borrow money from China to give to Chinese companies and then pay China back with interest from a virus that we are having to deal with in greater acuity as a consequence of China. I mean, that, that strikes me as so obvious. I can't even believe I have to say that out loud. But an America <laughs> first approach to a coronavirus response would seem to restore the economic condition of American workers, of American small businesses, of even American large companies before we bailed out China. Uh, unfortunately, that, that has not gotten a lot of, of traction in Nancy Pelosi's House of Representatives. Now I'm working, you know, been on some calls with Secretary Mnuchin to try to encourage the administration, at least in practice, let's ensure that we are not giving China the benefit of the China virus. Yeah, that's a great thing. And so, so far, bipartisanship hasn't uh, engulfed this bill yet. You haven't had uh, many Democrats rally around it. 
lot of your Republican colleagues have. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, you you mentioned that uh, on justthenews.com, uh, there was 84% support for my bill. I think all That's of the right. other 16% live inside the Beltway of Washington. Because, you know, I mean, I, I know you've got a lot of listeners inside the Beltway, but also a lot of listeners outside the Beltway. And what people just need to know is that the truth is that China has a lot of influence over the Congress, over Washington, D.C. They exert that influence through the lobbyists that they hire, through the agents, uh, the foreign agents that they have who engage in PR campaigns uh, to try to right. influence Congress. Right. And, you know, it's it would be naive to suggest that uh, they don't utilize that tool as part of their overall influence campaign. So I'm just trying to call it like I see it. Uh, and I hope that the administration w- will continue the great work that they've done to be the top administration, certainly in my lifetime on China. But but let's not be so foolish as to put American companies and American workers on par with China. We should put our people first. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's clearly the message of the bill and, and clearly what uh, folks on our website have been talking about. Now, we've got this big uh, $2.2 trillion <clears throat> relief bill that came out of the Senate last night. Um, most lawmakers barely got a chance to read the hundreds of pages before they voted on it. What are you, I know you're driving back to, to come to vote on the bill. What um, What's your take on the bill so far? Are you happy with it? Will you support it? I'm very frustrated with this bill. And, you know, I'm still taking input as, you know, I'm driving and on conference calls with my staff as we're having experts review different portions. And I really want the opportunity to to digest this to the fullest extent. But But I've got to tell you, you know, when you see the Kennedy Center upgrades, uh, when you see, you know, carve outs for like, you know, Howard University, uh, when you see 75 million for the National Endowment for the Humanities, you, you're, you start to realize that, uh, that all of the normal viruses that infect Washington legislating uh, are all over this bill. And uh, that wow. that really is something that I try to fight against. Now, um, you know, I also understand that the relief is necessary and the relief has to happen now. But I got to tell you, the thing that gets me most upset about this bill, John, is the $350 million for migrant and refugee programs at the Department of State. Now, I mean, they're in the nickel for ICE or Border Patrol, but $350 million for migrants and refugees. And many of the people, not all, but many of the people served by these programs are not in our country legally. And so, again, you know, I just try to utilize the simple but powerful message that got this president elected. Are we putting America first when we are devoting hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, to the to the needs and aspirations of people who did not come here legally? And it, it, it is deeply frustrating that when you really look at the, the movement that is the Trump movement and the America first movement, the inputs are people at rallies chanting build the wall and then outcomes so frequently are these negotiated deals where, you know, they're in anything for any border security here. And if there was ever a time to emphasize border security, it is when, you know, porous borders could potentially infect your people. But instead of doing that, we're doing 350 million in just migrant and in a refugee resettlement. And to me, that is so offensive to the American people and to the American workers. To me, it is the worst thing in the bill. It takes, uh, there are just so many special interests that get their hands on this bill. And it's, uh, um, it's really remarkable. It'll take us days to understand all the rifle shots that are in it. Um, but when you look, I, I want to 
switch to another uh, subject just quickly because I know I know you got to run to get back to uh, to Washington. But the um, this pandemic clearly caught us flat-footed in the sense that we've had an NIH that gets $30, $40 billion a year in funding, uh, and yet they weren't really prepared. They hadn't tested drugs like chloroquine and hydro- hydroxychloroquine, which earlier pandemics had shown were, were working on patients. When we're done with this, do we need to go back and look at how the NIH was run? Why? Uh, we have a big story on our site right now from Christine Dolan that talks to all these infectious disease specialists who said, we dropped the ball. We knew that chloroquine might work, but we didn't do the clinical trials because we always move on to the next thing and we never finish what we started. Um, will there be a need for oversight or, or armchair quarterbacking about the medical research agencies on the front lines of this to make sure that the next time a pandemic comes along, we've had the research already in our back pocket? Well, I think that at any time a great country deals with the great challenge, you want to emerge from that challenge stronger and wiser and more prepared. And I know that that is the philosophy that the president and, and the vice president will take as we move forward. Um, I, I do think uh, that we will also sort of evaluate uh, how, how these decisions have to be made in uh, real time, balancing uh, economic loss and hardship uh, and the consequence of that with these very serious healthcare outcomes. Um, one thing I could tell you that I don't know we built into the model on the front end, Governor, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis warned about it and we're seeing it, is that the economic right. dis, uh, lo, or, uh, you know, uh, disruption is causing a real loss in life. We're seeing domestic violence up. We're seeing overdoses up. We're seeing suicides up. And I'm sure Florida is not unique in that regard. And so I think that, yes, from the medical side, I think there'll be a, 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 a full evaluation of how to emerge stronger. But I also think that uh, we as a country have to establish a value premise in balancing these serious health concerns with um, the damage that this type of economic disruption can cause. Uh, you mentioned hydroxychloroquine and one piece of news that I uh, just picked up uh, late yesterday that I'm very concerned about is that India, our great ally, the largest democracy in the world, has just banned right. the export of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, that, is, uh, that is not being uh, a great partner, but it reinforces what the president and Tom Cotton and my colleague in the House, Mike Gallagher, have said about the importance of re-domesticating a lot of the medical supply chain so that in the future, if there are global outbreaks, you know, we are not uh, at the whims of other countries that are, are perhaps not going to be as eager to export their product. Yeah, that's really a, a big lesson in this pandemic was how much of our medical supplies, hospital gowns, drugs, ventilators, masks, were uh, all made overseas, and we had no supply chain here at all. It really kind of validates what President Trump originally ran on in 2016 when he talked about rebuilding these manufacturing um, uh, sectors. Do you think coming out of this there will be a legislation and a uh, almost a Marshall-like plan to get manufacturing of important assets back in the United States? Is that another potential stimulus that we have down the road? Uh, I think that all of the arguments that the president has been making about the need to uh, instill that manufacturing base and supply chain reliability and resiliency within our own country will be supercharged by this event. The hope is that uh, we will have now more bipartisan support for those concepts 
because we see the importance of uh, what the president's been saying all along. We already see that movement with people like Seth Moulton, uh, a Democrat, had run for president, right. now signing signing on to America First legislation with Mike Gallagher to re-domesticate a lot of this medical supply chain from China. So I think that's going to become more of a bipartisan priority. It's one the president's been leading on uh, really since uh, he started his campaign. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And you do. I've talked to several Democrats in the last week who said this this whole episode opened their eyes for the first time and that they're going to have to reevaluate some of these things. So hopefully that will be one silver lining out of this, all the lessons we learn and all of the preparedness that we take into the next uh, crisis uh, from from learning from this one. So, Congressman, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy getting back to Washington. We wish you well. Be safe, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Stay safe, John. Thank you, Matt. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we give you just that, the news, big interviews with newsmakers and facts. Today, we learned a lot about the coronavirus stimulus package, the fight against coronavirus, and Uh, efforts to keep China from getting our tax dollars as part of the relief package. Next week, we'll be back with more just like that. Until then, have a good weekend. Stay healthy, stay safe, and enjoy your time with your families.